0: Matthew 28, this is Lesson 184C. We ask the Lord's blessing with me as we bow our heads. Father God, we ask that you would help us now to turn our hearts and our affections to the one who is the resurrection and the life, so that we are filled with a a deeper love and a knowledge of him. We want again to know that wonderful experience of being illumined by your spirit using your living word so that the things of the Lord Jesus are genuine and real in every sense to us and that we truly feed on them. Give us this day our spiritual food, Father, and grant that there would be nothing in this hour that hinders the work that you so desire to accomplish in each and every one of us this morning. I pray for the liberty to say only those things that would glorify you and your Son and edify your saints. And may none of us forfeit the blessings that you have for us by allowing our minds to wander or to focus on things that, at least during this next hour, are not important. We ask that this time would be entirely sanctified, that it would be set apart for your will to be accomplished. And now may we together worship you in spirit and in truth. What we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we mentioned toward the end of our last lesson some of the minor but completely reconcilable differences in the four gospel accounts regarding the early Sunday morning positions, for example, of the sun in the sky. Did you read your books and realize that that was probably even spiritually intended to give the picture of illumination from the women when they left and it was dark? By the time they got to the tomb, it was light. They found out he was risen. And also the various comings and goings of the women to the tomb is different in the four accounts. But there's reasons for these slight differences, and we're going to further mention some of those reasons as we progress. I told you some of them last week. But I do want us to know that the minor differences in the four gospel accounts from the various witnesses of those accounts are far overshadowed by the major the major similarities. All four Gospels tell us that it was the Galilean women who had traveled with the Lord and his men during his Galilean ministry, probably for several years, ministering to him and to his men. They were the ones who went early to the tomb on Sunday morning, likely from different locations in Jerusalem, even maybe as far away as Bethany, two miles out. Remember? That would be a fulfillment of scripture that the disciples were scattered and the women were scattered. Not only would it be for safety purposes, but didn't Jesus say smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter? So they were scattered and they were coming to the tomb from various locations. So it gets kind of confusing. Some of them probably meet up en route and get to the tomb at the same time or various times and it gets complicated, but we'll, t- we'll talk about that as we progress. Um, but that's That's uh, one of the similarities that it was the Galilean women who arrived first at the tomb. All four Gospels also tell us that they found the great stone rolled away and also the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. Another great similarity in all the accounts is that human guards were replaced by angelic guards. The Roman guards left and angels appeared. That's why the Roman guards left is because the angel appeared. And there's sometimes one angel, sometimes two angels. We don't know. Maybe there was a lot of angels that came down. But, you know, they, they're, they're different amounts of angels at different times. And that's all very easily reconcilable as well. However, of all the similarities of the four gospel records, none is more mystifying to you and I from where we are in history I don't think none of them is as mystifying as the fact that no one, absolutely no one, was expecting the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Doesn't that kind of mystify you, why none of them were expecting that? It was absolutely the furthest thing from the minds of the women, from the Lord's own disciples, certainly from the Roman guard. The only ones who were even a little bit close was the religious rulers, his greatest enemies. And they weren't expecting a resurrection at all. They were just expecting maybe a, a, a hoax, you know, that they'd come and, and steal his body. So that kind of mystifies us. What is most obvious in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that his followers had, had difficulty believing and receiving the news about his resurrection. Why do you think this is? Well, just like last week it was time that we get into the deep stuff, like really deep, (laughs) down into the spirits in prison, I think it's time that we understand why the disciples and everybody at that time had difficulty believing Jesus when he had said over and over again to them, I will rise on the third day. So what we need to do right now is understand where they were coming from, what they had been taught. You know, since the apostles were all Jewish, and since the early church was primarily Jewish, we need to find out what the Jews at that time believed about resurrection. There's no doubt that they did believe in resurrection, except for which little sect? Right, the Sadducees. That's why they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in resurrection. But other than them, unless somebody was just completely an unbelieving Jew and didn't believe in God or any of the Bible, uh, most of the Jewish people did believe in resurrection. Um, And how did they get that belief? Where did they get that belief? From the Old Testament scriptures. That's where they got their belief in resurrection. However, there were two big differences, and I'll get to those in a minute, between what they believed about resurrection and what the early church believes, and what you and I believe about resurrection. So they got their belief in resurrection from the Old Testament, as early as the book of Job. Now, Job was written before Moses even uh, penned the Pentateuch, before the first five books of the Bible were written. Job was inspired to write the book of Job. And in Job 14.14, this question is asked, if a man die, shall he live again? Pretty important question, isn't it? And Job gave the the answer, he was inspired to write the answer, and he said, all the days of my appointed time, that's his time on earth, we all have an appointed time to spend here on planet earth, all the days of my appointed time, will I wait till my change come? That's speaking about resurrection. The psalmist also wrote, of their trust in God to redeem them from the power of the grave. I'm not going to read it, but you could look up Psalm forty nine fifteen. And they believed um, that he had the power to receive them into his presence in glory. Psalm seventy three twenty four. Jewish belief in resurrection is the logical outworking of God's power over death. They understood God and his power. Therefore they understood that he could even raise the dead. And that is supported by such other passages as Hosea 6, 2, which says, In the third day he, the Lord God, will raise us up. The third day. Interesting, isn't it? Third day he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. And then you know about the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel 37, which includes these words, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves. Spe- speaks of resurrection, doesn't it? And then there is uh, chapters 26 to 29 in Isaiah. Don't have time to read all those chapters, but they include these words. Thy dead man, men shall live together with my dead body, shall they rise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out its dead. And then there's Psalm 16, verses 9 and 10. Remember, we looked at this last week, where it says, My flesh shall also rest in hope. Thou shalt show me the path of life. That's speaking of resurrection. Life in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. There's also Isaiah 25, verse 8. He will swallow up death in victory. And the Lord God will wipe away all tears from all faces. Aren't you looking forward to that day? Goodbye tears. I am so sick of tears. Except for tears of joy. We'll have tears of joy. But all the other sad tears wiped away forever. Yay. Amen. (laughs) During the days of the Lord Jesus, it was the Pharisees, you know, who championed the belief in resurrection. The Pharisees were actually the fundamentalists of that day. They would have been really the good guys if only they had had a personal relationship with the Lord. The problem was that, I mean, they believed in the inspiration of the Old Testament scriptures, which was better than the Sadducees. They only believed really in the Pentateuch, the first five books that were God-inspired. Um, But the Pharisees believed in the inspiration of the Old Testament. They had all their ducks in a row. The only problem was they were all wrapped up in tradition and ritual, right? And they got focused on that instead of focused on having um, a personal relationship with God. It was all about the externals instead of the internal. But they did keep alive the messianic hope that the Messiah was coming, and they also kept alive the hope in the resurrection, And Christ sided with them on this. Remember, against the Sadducees? Back in Matthew 22, the Sadducees had come to Jesus and they tried to trap him by uh, presenting him with a hypothetical question in order to mock the idea of resurrection. Remember the question about a woman who had seven husbands? I'd be really scared if I was that seventh guy, wouldn't you? (laughs) to eat her cooking that's for sure <laughs> but they said what about a woman who had 7 husbands ha 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 whose wife would she be in the resurrection you know and they thought they got him but remember how he answered them he said ye do er not knowing the scriptures remember all the scriptures we just read what's the matter with you guys did you miss all those scriptures about the resurrection the bodies coming out of And he said, nor the power of God. You err because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And then he went on to really silence them. Now, remember, they only believe in the first five books of Moses, right? So he quotes right from the book of Moses. Actually, when Moses is standing before the burning bush and God said to him, you know, Moses said, who are you? And he said, I am that I am. And then he said, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Jesus said, God is the God of the living, not the dead. You know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead a long time by the time Moses went before the burning bush. And God said, I am their God. If those guys were not, now they weren't bodily resurrected, but they were still alive, weren't they? Their souls were alive. And if they weren't alive, he would have said, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the Pharisees were going, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) That was one time the Pharisees were really excited that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. So it was the Pharisees who kept alive the idea of uh, the belief in resurrection. However, there were and there are yet today among Orthodox Jews, those Jews who do still believe and are still looking to, you know, there's not many. Most Jewish people are pretty secular nowadays, especially over in Israel. But those who still do look for the Messiah to come, and uh, believe in the Old Testament scriptures, there are two major differences between their belief in resurrection and the Christian belief in Jesus' resurrection. Do we need to pray? Is everything all right? Okay, okay. Mm-mm-mm. Remember Betty. Pray for Betty. Is she Betty Hurley, I know. Is she having... What would she say? Oh, Lord God, please, 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 please be with Betty and help everything to be all right. Lord, thank you for Carolyn. We just pray, Lord, that there would be nothing terrible going on and that we know you're the great physician. We just put her into your hands. Lord, we love her and we thank you for her love for you. In Jesus' name. Hmm. All right. So anyway, there are two differences that they have in their belief in resurrection and what um, and what Christian belief is in the resurrection. First, although the Jewish people have accounts in their Old Testament scripture of resuscitations back to life, for example, the widow of uh, Zarephath's son, and who was else was it? This it was it the Shunammite's son in the Old Testament, and then there was that weird case where they were burying a man, and they put him in the hole, and his bones, his body touched the bones of Elijah, and he came. Those are resuscitations back to life. Um, yet they did not believe that the true resurrection of the body, you know, into an immortal, glorified, resurrected body would take place until the end of history, the end of time, somewhere way off in the future, that that's when people would get their glorified, resurrected bodies. I feel like I've lost all of you. Your eyes are just going everywhere. (laughs) All right, let's get that focus back, okay? Um... The Jews believed in resurrection, but they did not believe that the body of people would be resurrected in an immortal celestial body, glorified body, until the end of human history. They did not believe, nor do they yet believe today, that resurrection will occur within history as an historical event. See, every resuscitated person in the Old Testament, they, they came back to life in what kind of body? They're mortal bodies, and they had to die again. Plus everyone who was resuscitated back to life or revived, it wasn't truly a resurrection. Even with Lazarus, you know, it was the same old body, same old flesh and blood body. Um, and, but every one of them was brought back to life through a prophet of God. No one had ever just brought himself back to life. Even the guy that went into the grave, he touched the bones of Elijah. Okay, so that's one thing they believe till, to this day, and this is what the apostles were raised in, believing that, yes, there's going to be a resurrection of the body, but it won't be until sometime way off in the future. The second major difference of the Jewish view of resurrection is that it will be general, meaning that it will be for everybody, all at one time, never anyone just individually resurrecting or just one little group of people resurrecting. So their belief is not only that it will take place after the end of human history, but it will be for all who have ever lived. Believers in the true Jehovah God, and I'm telling you about the Jewish perspective, you know, they say you have to believe in Jehovah God, the true and living God, they don't say Jesus Christ, but believers in him will be resurrected to live with him in heaven and unbelievers will be resurrected to, to go into hell. And they use Daniel 12:2 as support for this. Daniel 12:2 is indeed about the resurrection, but it happens to be about the resurrection of all Old Testament people, from Adam all the way to um, John the Baptist or whoever the last Old Testament person was. And Daniel 12:2 says, "Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth—that's talking about their bodies—many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake." some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So you can see that they do believe in the resurrection, but it will be for everybody at once. And when? Way off in the future at the end of of history. So unless they were Sadducees or unbelieving Jews, these two aspects concerning the resurrection, that it would be at the end of history and that it would be general, were taught and they were... They were believed by the Jewish people up until the time of Christ. And you can hear this in Martha's response to Jesus. Remember after he told her that her brother Lazarus would rise again? How did she respond to that? She said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. At the last day. Yeah, big deal. I know. I know, but it's way off, Lord. Way off into at the, after the end of history. And that's a similar response that the Lord received from Peter, James, and John after they witnessed his divine glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, as they are coming down from the Mount, he tells them not to tell anybody what they had seen up there on the Mount. He says, don't tell anyone until after the Son of Man has risen from the dead. This is in Mark 9, 9. And we are told in verse 10 that those three disciples kept that saying within themselves, questioning one another what the rising from the dead means. You know, it was confusing because they'd been taught, yeah, there's a general resurrection at the end of time. And now he's saying, don't tell anybody what you saw until I'm the Son of Man is risen from the dead. So they're thinking, we got to wait all that long, you know? And what good will it tell people then? Because everybody, you'll be raised and everybody else will be raised. So Of course they were confused. You get it? And then I thought too, every time he said, on the third day I'll rise, they might have been equating that with Hosea 6 two, which said that on the third day God will uh, raise us up and we shall live in his sight. So are you getting the picture why they're they confused? There had never been a person apart from a prophet of God who had resurrected back to life in an immortal body all by himself. So it's nothing. It had never existed before. So it was something, you know, it says there's nothing new under the sun. Well, this was new under the sun. (laughs) And it was the sun, wasn't it? So the unusual feature about the Christian's claim the one that was preached and taught on the day of Pentecost, and the one that is still to this day preached in the true churches. The unique feature is that Jesus rose in a bodily resurrection, not just a resuscitation in his, other, in his flesh and blood bone body, um, and not just in spirit. He didn't just raise in spirit. He rose bodily, and it was a new glorified body. It was still his body, because it still has the nail prints in his hands, but it's glorified. And it was individual. And it was before the end of history. It says in Colossians 1.18, he is the firstborn from the dead. First one to ever be resurrected. We had a Sunday school teacher ask us that question on Sunday. He said, was Jesus the first one to ever be resurrected? And a lot of people are going, no, because they were thinking of those Old Testament people and Lazarus and the widow, you know. But that that's not true. He was the firstborn of the resurrection. Those others were just revived. And there was no other person involved, was there? No prophet that stood outside of Jesus' tomb and said, Jesus, come forth, as he had done with Lazarus. He was raised himself. He raised himself. God raised him from the dead. I guess the closest we have to that picture would be Jonah. You know, Jonah, you can, we can argue all day, was Jonah really, was dead? Was he dead in the whale and resurrected? Was he resuscitated back to life? I don't know, you know, we can talk about that. Um, and I don't think we could come to any conclusions. Personally, I think he was dead and was released from the, the whale of a jail. <laughs> Do you know that Jonah slept on a foam blubber bed <laughs> but he was probably the closest, and maybe that's why the Lord used him as the sign, you know, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of, in the, uh, the, the whale's belly. So, shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth? Because no, no prophet was involved. God raised Jonah back, right? Anyway, so it was unique. Um, the Christian belief is totally unique in resurrection. According to Jewish belief, There was no pre-existing reason to believe that anyone could or anyone would do what Jesus had predicted. So whenever he made his predictions to his men, they assumed, as did Martha, that he was talking about the end of history and the general resurrection of the dead. Or maybe they thought, well, he's speaking in some kind of parabolic, symbolic, allegorical, mysterious way like he does so much of the time and we don't get it. Or maybe he's connecting all this with Hosea 6, too, about the third day. You know, they were just confused. Well, since there was no thought in either Greek or Roman mythology, which was prevalent at that day as well, or Jewish teaching. You know, you can search Greek mythology and Roman mythology, and you learn a lot of weird things about the gods and goddesses. (laughs) Yes, you do. being greek i know my dad was always talking about zeus i mean it was just so hilarious he didn't believe in him but you know he's talking about all the gods and goddesses all the time but there's a lot of weird things but you never find in either one of those a person an individual coming to life in an immortal body you know a dead person becoming a living glorified person neither was it taught in the jewish teaching as we just went through um So we have to ask the question, what then was it that took a group of very, very disheartened men, 11 men, rural, basically rural, unsophisticated peasants, who were about to throw in the towel with regard to their messianic hope in a man from Nazareth and flee back to Galilee in their despair and changed them into men who were so confident in their faith that each and every one of them was willing to die for their faith. What changed them? Big, big, huge change. You know, they would not have been willing to die, to give their lives and to suffer what they suffered if, if their faith was built on a hoax. And they knew it was a hoax. If they had been the ones to steal the body and they knew the whole thing was a hoax, would they be willing to die for that? No, no, no. What was it that overnight caused the followers of Jesus to conquer the most awful of disappointments? Can you imagine what was going through their minds during those two Sabbath days? How was it possible that a handful of simple men and women, who by no means had great intelligence or eloquence or even strength of faith, that they were able to begin their victorious march of salvation and changed hearts after the shattering fiasco that they had witnessed there on Calvary. What changed them? Well, a lot of people have searched that, and they try to come up with what they call the mysterious X. It's just so foolish what man spends time and money on to find the mysterious X. What changed these guys? What gave them the idea that a man could rise from the dead of his own into an immortal body? Well, I'll tell you. I know you already know. (laughs) We don't have to spend a lot of tax dollars to find out what changed them. It was that these men and women saw and heard for themselves all the evidence that was necessary to absolutely and forever convince them that Jesus had indeed risen bodily from the dead part of that ev- evidence was provided for them in the Sunday morning post resurrection events post resurrection he resurrected first before any of the events that we're going to be looking at right now there's nothing said about his resurrection actually if you look in the scripture remember there was only three words about his crucifixion they crucified him there's nothing about the resurrection it never says and jesus burst forth out of the tomb does it we just know it from the angelic announcement, and the things that were witnessed there at the tomb, and then, of course, his many appearances. So part of the evidence that gave them the assurance was the post-resurrection events at the tomb, of course, the angelic announcement. um, Part of it came from seeing his grave clothes and the way they were in the tomb. Most of the evidence, however, came from seeing Jesus himself resurrected. If no one had ever seen him, The empty tomb would not have proven enough, would it? Mm -mm. They needed to see him. Of his own initiative, the resurrected Lord appeared when and where and to whom he chose. And he appeared over and over and over and over and over again on just that first day. Now, we know he appeared for 40 days after his resurrection, but just on Resurrection Sunday, he appeared to people, always believers, how many times? How many times? Five times. You know what that is? Grace, 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 grace. <laughs> Five is the number of grace. The gospel message was completed with his bodily resurrection. And the gospel message is the greatest message of grace that you and I will ever hear. Because he lives, we shall live also, if we have put our faith in him. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift Of God's grace, not of works, as any man should boast. The wages of sin is death. But what's the gift of God's grace? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The witnesses to whom Jesus appeared, and there were some 500 of them, um, during the course of the next 40 years, were numerous. I say 40 years. (laughs) 40 days. Um, there, There were 16 of them named for us. But we know there was 500 at least that he appeared to. And actually, if you count the Apostle Paul, to whom the Lord Jesus also appeared, there's 17 who are named. The Apostle Paul was an apostle, uh, you know, out of season. These four chosen witnesses um, not only saw the Lord, but they talked to him, didn't they? They touched him and they even ate with him. Why did he eat with them? To show them that he didn't just rise in spirit. It was a bodily resurrection. He showed them the nail prints. It was a bodily resurrection. You'd be surprised how many out there, if you talk to ministers and pastors and liberals, do not believe in the bodily resurrection. I think it would surprise you. But it was a bodily resurrection. Okay, we won't get very far, but let's look at our passages for today and then um, return kind of to what we started to discuss last week. Regarding those post resurrection events at the tomb early Sunday morning. So begin we're going to begin by looking at the first four verses in Matthew twenty eight. It says In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, that would be Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, to see the sepulchre. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. All right, now let's go over to, and of course the keepers there is talking about the Roman soldiers. Let's go to Mark 16. I'm not going to wait for you for time's sake, but I'm going to read the first four verses in Mark 16 too. It says, and when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James. We know she's also the mother of Joseph. Now, by the way, James is one of the apostles. That's James the less. So she's the, the mother of one of the apostles. And Salome. Who was Salome? Not the sister of Baloney. <laughs> she was Mary's sister. Mary. She was actually Jesus' aunt. And her two sons were... James and John. Right. So she was old enough to also have sons who were apostles. I believe Mary Magdalene is the young one here. The other two women are old enough to have sons who are apostles. Uh, Mary Magdalene, I just tell you that because she's the one who's always running everywhere. <laughs> um, but they're at the they're at the tomb, Mary, the two Marys and Salome, and we're told that they had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. Verse two, and very early in the morning, the first day of the week they came unto the sepulchre at the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, this is as they're going to the tomb, who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. By the way, they say those stones weighed about two tons. Very great. All right, now Luke, would you go to Luke 24? And I'm going to read the first three verses in Luke. Luke 24. Now, upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they, that's the women, if you look up ahead at the verses 55 and 56 up there, chapter 23, the Galilean women came very early in the morning unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them, certain other women with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher, and they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. One more place, real quickly, John 20. And I'm just going to read first two verses there. John 20, verse 1. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher. Now what that means is she left wherever she was while it was yet dark. Okay? By the time she gets there, the sun is up. And seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Now we know from the other accounts that who was with her when she got there. The other Mary and Salome. But John, for whatever reason, just wants to focus his account. He wrote last. He knew the others had already talked about all the other women. He, for his reasons, wants to focus just on Mary Magdalene. Alright? So he's just telling her what us, what she did. And by the way, she is the one who ran and told him about the tomb being empty. So let me read it from the beginning again. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark under the sepulchre and see the stone seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Who's that? How does John always refer to himself? That's John. Mm -hmm. And saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we, you see the we? She is speaking on behalf of the other two women that were there with her, and we know not where they have laid him. All right. If we get that far, we'll be doing good. So go back to Matthew 28. The first post-resurrection event at the tomb mentioned, the first one mentioned, comes from Matthew, and only from Matthew. And it is that there was another earthquake. Apparently, once Matthew wrote about it, the Holy Spirit saw no need for the other gospel writers to repeat it. So only Matthew tells us about the earthquake. This is the second earthquake now in a span of how many days? Three days. The first occurred at the time the Lord yielded up his spirit. Remember? And then there was an earthquake. Now in the very early hours of Sunday morning, there is a second quake. And it is called a great earthquake. In Greek, the word is mega. Like a megapolis, a, a big city. It, it's the word for great. It was a. This was, you know, on the... On the Richter scale, this was a great, this was a big earthquake. And it's uh, kind of, you know, a big earthquake, you would think, would leave a, some kind of footprint of destruction. But there's no report here of any destruction at all. Now, maybe there was some, I don't know, but there's no report of any. It's possible that the only destruction caused by this great earthquake is that it broke the cords and the seals on the great stone now, wouldn't that be something, you know, Rome puts their little puny little seal in their cord and they say, you know, if anybody breaks it, they'll be crucified. I'd like them to to crucify, see them crucify the earth, wouldn't you? Put the earth up on a crucifix. <laughs> Naughty earth. You broke Rome's little seals and cords. <laughs> uh, remember when Pilate said to Jesus, he said, you know, don't you know who you're speaking to? I have the power to... To crucify you or to release you. And Jesus had said you would have no power at all except it was given to you from above. Well, this is an example of that. Rome had no power at all. And God could just so easily break their little cords and seals. There is nothing in scripture that tells us how the people of Jerusalem felt about these two earthquakes. Three days, you know, that close together. I don't know about you, but if I was there, I think I would want to get out of the city pretty quickly. Thinking, what's going on here? Maybe Jerusalem, you know, is on a fault line or something. Do you know that right under the Mount of Olives is a big fault line? And they say that one day it's going to split in half because it's right there. And when is that day going to be? (laughs) They're right. One day it is because when the Lord returns, he's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives and we're told it's going to split right down the middle. And there is a fault line there. I'm not making it up. It's true. But I would think that if I was in uh, Jerusalem and there were two, especially the second one was a great quake, I might want to get out of town quickly. You'd also think that those who believed in the Lord would have realized that something profound was taking place. You know, one right at the time of his death and now another one. Wouldn't you think it would make them realize, well, he said the third day, here's another, let's run out to the tomb and see. Wouldn't you think that way? Well, we have the advantage of hindsight, don't we? But it didn't. You know, they, it didn't affect them. Peter and John are still wherever they are when Mary comes running to them. So there's and there's no mention of the quake. That's what's interesting by anybody. You know, the earthquake at the Lord's death, remember we talked about how it was like the amen to the Lord's completed atonement work. He said it is finished and the earth went amen and quake. This is like the the second quake is the Lord's or the earth's amen to the Lord's victory over sin and death and the grave. He comes bursting out of that tomb and the and the earth says, Amen, all over again. Even bigger, you know, greater. Amen. This time. But it is strange that none of the people in the narrative even mentioned it, including the women who we assume were on their way when the earth started rumbling under their feet. Um but then, you know, I got to think about how nobody talks about the earthquake, but the same thing was also true with regard to the supernatural miracles that took place three days earlier when the Lord was crucified and died. So what's going on here? Well, it's very likely that the Holy Spirit did not want these events, like the three-hour noonday darkness and the rent veil and the earthquakes and the opened graves, and even the dead saints coming out of their graves, and the appearance of angels. The Holy Spirit didn't want any of these things to take the emphasis off of the far bigger, greater news, which was what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where the emphasis is is to be, and that's where he puts it. He doesn't take us off to think about angels and earthquakes and even Mary the Lord's mother. I got to thinking about why she's not mentioned. The last time she's mentioned is when he's on the cross and he calls her woman. But what we know she's got to be with when Mary Magdalene comes running to tell Peter and John they've taken the Lord's body. You, you know Mary is there because John took her to be with him. But there's no mention of Mary at all. Why is that? Who does the Lord God, Holy Spirit want us to focus on Jesus Christ his son well the scriptures apparent explanation for the earthquake is interesting if we look really carefully at verse 2 of Matthew 28 we notice something what caused the earthquake well let's look it says and behold there was a great earthquake for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it the scriptures explanation seems to be in that little word for which ties together the great earthquake and the descent of an angel from heaven and him rolling away the great stone. Perhaps, as with all those rapid-fire events that took place almost simultaneously at the Lord's death, you know, when he bowed his head, he said it is finished, bowed his head, gave up his ghost, um, and then there was the rent veil and the earthquake and the open tombs, and all those things just happen in rapid-fire succession, Right? Well, perhaps that's what's going on here. You know, maybe the minute the Lord burst in his new glorified body out of that tomb, out of his grave clothes and out of his tomb, the earth started to quake. And the angel at the same moment from heaven came down, touched earth. The earth was quaking. He took his hand and single-handedly moved aside that great stone. The earth is is shaking and the great cavity or the cavity of the empty tomb is exposed all of that could happen in a matter of seconds right how long do you think it took the lord to come out of his tomb out of his grave clothes and out of his tomb twinkling of an eye how long do you think it would take the angel to descend from heaven twinkling of an eye so all that i think happened just all all together Now make sure, however, that you have this sequence right. Make sure you understand that the angel did not roll aside the great stone from the mouth of the tomb so that Jesus could get out. Right? You do know that. (laughs) When the angel rolled aside the, the great stone, it was empty. Jesus had already risen and left the tomb. He was no longer bound by physical limitations such as sealed tombs and closed doors. I think it's interesting. You know, people in the world today still try to keep Jesus sealed up in a tomb, don't they? Behind closed doors. And, they, there's no way you can keep Jesus closed up like that. Now, this was a lot different from the account of Lazarus. Lazarus had come out at, in a revived body, right? His, his old body revived back to life. And so that body could not pass through his grave clothes and the and the solid rock of the, the tombstone. So it had been necessary for that tombstone to be rolled aside. And remember, Jesus even said, unwind him. Human hands needed to help Lazarus. They needed to let him out of the tomb and then unwind him. No human or angelic hands, however, needed to help Jesus emerge from either his death clothes or his grave. Because he came out in a resurrected, glorified body. One day we're going to have bodies like that. It's going to be fantastic. I mean, we could just walk right through walls, but we'll still be able to eat. I love that part of it. (laughs) So, if Jesus was already resurrected, if he was already out of the tomb, then why was it necessary for the angel to remove the stone? Why? Yeah, you got it. So that the four chosen witnesses could look inside and see the way the grave clothes were lying there and see that the tomb was empty. Well, as the women are making their way to the tomb, the only thing that we know they were concerned about is how they were going to manage to roll away that great stone before the mouth of the tomb. Um, there are a number of women who went to the tomb. We know that. Uh, four, Only four of them are, are named. But Luke tells us that there were other women With them, Whoever they all were, we know that they were part of, if not all, except for Mary, the Lord's mother, of the Galilean women who had come with the Lord and his men um, down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Luke tells us that it was the same group of women who had gone to the tomb late Thursday night. They didn't stay as long as the two Marys, and they went home to prepare additional spices. So it would seem that the two Marys must have come to the tomb separately from another group of Galilean women. They, they came separately. And apparently the two Marys were met by Salome somewhere along the line. Or maybe she even just met them at the tomb. I don't know. And don't you think Salome was also probably with Mary, the Lord's mother, because she was her sister? And so, and she would be with James and John, her two sons. So I think that probably Peter, James, John, Salome, and Mary were probably together. And Mary Magdalene knew where they were staying, and that's why she ran to see Peter and John and tell them the news. Um, If all the women had come together, and remember Luke said it was many women? Um, I think also Matthew tells us that it was many women. If they had all come together, would it have been a big concern for them how to roll aside the tombstone? No, because women back in those days did a lot of work. They were strong women. And that all of them could have rolled aside that tombstone. So that's why we know it was only either two or three women. And they were wondering, how are we going to move that? That's a big stone. And uh, that's the primary issue on their minds. That's the, the primary topic. Actually, the verb says they repeated that over and over again. What are we going to do? How are we going to move it aside? Do you notice that there is no expectation whatsoever of resurrection in their conversation? None. It's also apparent that these women did not know that since their last visit to the tomb on Thursday late afternoon, um, after that on Friday morning, that the chief priests and the Pharisees had gotten together to persuade Pilate to not only secure the Lord's tomb with cords and seals, but also to place a Roman guard there. What do you think the women would have done if they had known that? Do you think they would have gone to the tomb to begin with? I think they still would. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. If they had known there was a Roman guard there and it was sealed up and everything, they might not have gone in the first place. Maybe place they might have. They might have thought, well, let's go and beg the soldiers and see what they'll do. But, of course, the soldiers wouldn't have broken the seals because then they would be in danger of death. So that's pure speculation. But it's obvious the women did not know that there was a Roman guard outside the tomb. They also knew that the Lord had already resurrected. And an angel had taken away the problem of the obstacle that they knew about, which was the great stone. They knew about that obstacle. Plus, the angel and the earthquake had already also taken about obstacle, taken away obstacles they did not know about, which was the seals, the cords, and the Roman guard. Isn't that a great lesson for us? Did you discuss this in your group about how how so often the things that we worry about, the obstacles, the 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 things that we think are stumbling blocks in our way to serve the Lord, to go serve the Lord, and we think, well, I can't do it because there's this great big obstacle. Well. The big, the big stone, there you go. Um, The big thing is to just do as these women and step out in faith and say, Lord, I want to serve you. I want to minister to you. I want to do what I can and let him take care of the obstacles. It's often that way. By the time you get to where you're ready to serve, he's removed those obstacles, hasn't he? And he will. Our part is just in faith to step out. And that's what these women did. Well, it's humorous. You know, God created us in his image. Do you have a sense of humor? Do you have a sense? I hope you do. You need a sense of humor. <laughs> a cheerful heart is good medicine. Um, but it's it's okay for us to look at this and laugh. I read one commentator. Well, every commentator I read saw humor in this whole account. Um, but one said that there is God's laughter all over this. And there really, there really is. It is humorous that of all places the angel chose to sit on that great stone. You know, he rolled it aside like a, like it was just a piece of little, what? Like a marble, you know, just rolled it aside and then he hopped up on it. I just, that that is so cute. I really think it's cute. The Roman soldiers didn't see Christ resurrect from the dead, did they? He just, he was just gone. They didn't see him. But they did see the angel, didn't they? And they surely felt the earthquake beneath them at the same time that the angel descended. And uh, if they didn't faint first, I don't know when they fainted, but if they didn't faint first, they saw that angel, and I think they did see him single-handedly roll aside the stone. And the reason I say I think they saw it because they report to the chief priests all that they had seen. So they saw him come down, they saw him roll aside the stone, and they saw him hop up, sit on it. (laughs) And uh, what was so absolutely shocking to these soldiers was his appearance. This was obviously a non-human being. He was resplendent with the glories of the invisible word, world. He was as bright as the zigzagging streaks of searing lightning. Did you hear the lightning and thunder last night? That was surprising, wasn't it? His garment was as white and as pristine as dazzling, sparkling snow. The description that we're given here is really the best that human words can do to describe something otherworldly. Wouldn't you love to see an angel? I'd love to see an angel. I know I will one day, but it'd be kind of neat to just see one. Um, But this suggests the fact that he's so glowing and bright. It suggests something of God's own Shekinah glory that it's transmitted to the holy angels. Something of God's glory is transmitted to them. You know, as Moses had a measure of this glory transmitted to his countenance after his visit with God up on Mount Sinai. Well, the soldiers were so overcome with fear that they did shake and they became as dead men, it it tells us. And I think I told you this last week, but the word shake comes from the same greek word as the earthquake so really there were three earthquakes within the span of three days however this did not take place on the earth this last earthquake took place in the hearts of some otherwise brave bold and battle hardened men and by the way i know that when we look at bible picture books and Sunday school lessons for little kids, we often get the idea. Now, picture this in your mind. How do you picture the Lord's tomb with the stone in front of it and Roman guards? How many guards do you picture there? One? Two? Two at the most, right? Isn't that how we've always seen it? The stone and two guards, or one guard standing there. However, do you know that there were more than two guards, two soldiers stationed there? And this becomes very evident... From what we are told in Matthew 28:11, where it says that some of the watch came into the city. Into the city, by the way, tells us that the tomb was outside of the city, right? Uh, just like Calvary was outside of the city. But some of the watch came into the city to report to the chief priests what had happened at the tomb. Now, these some were probably the highest ranking sentries who were obligated to make a report of what had happened. The word some tells us that there were more than just two guards, okay? Some of the watch. If there were only two guard guards, it would have said one of them went into the city. If there was only one guard, it would have said he went into the city. Some means that there are more than two. In fact, and this really surprised me, I read that it has been estimated by those who estimate this sort of thing. That there were anywhere from 12 to 60 Roman guards stationed at that tomb. What does that tell us about how seriously the Jews and Pilate took this whole Jesus situation? Can you imagine, picture that many? I don't think I've ever seen a picture with that many. Um... And really, when I got to thinking about that, I was surprised. And then I thought, well, why should I be so surprised? When I remembered how many had come to arrest him when they were in, when he was in Gethsemane. Do you remember we were told that it was a band of men, John 18 verse three, and a band—the word in the in the Greek spoke of one tenth of a legion. How many is a legion? Six thousand. A tenth of six thousand is six hundred Roman soldiers. Came with the Sanhedrin members and Judas Iscariot and temple guard. Now we don't know how many temple guard, but they say at least 700 people went to arrest him in the middle of the night. So should it surprise us that there were maybe 12 to 60 guard outside of his tomb just to make sure that all those who were followers of Jesus didn't come to, to, you know, to, to battle them and, and try to get the, the body. And think about this, with that many soldiers on duty, it also tells us how absolutely ridiculous is the lie that the chief priests wanted them to spread, which was that they had fallen asleep (laughs) while the disciples came by night and stole Jesus' body. Let's say that there were only six soldiers, okay? Let's say there's only six at the tomb. Do you think that they would have all fallen asleep at the same time? When to fall asleep meant capital punishment? Lose your life for falling asleep? Don't you think they'd say, well, you two can go to sleep and the rest of the four of us will? I mean, that is just absolutely ludicrous to think that even six would have all slept at the same time. And here's something else that is even more ludicrous. How could they tell tell what happened while they were sleeping? Would you, ever, would you ever call a witness to the stand to testify about something, and say, "Now, were you sleeping when this happened?" Yes, I was. Well, can you tell us what happened? <laughs> yes. <laughs> How can, you can't tell what something what is going on when you're sound asleep. And do you really think that even if it was just six Roman guard, that not one of them would have waken up when there was a great earthquake? And an angel comes down bright as lightning and then rolls away a two-ton stone. You know, there's got to be noise. You think all those Roman soldiers would still sleep through all of that? I mean, the lie is harder to believe than the truth. And the chief, I I can't wait till we get to that, but um, they knew it was a lie. All right, the spirit. I believe, was having a great time. The Holy Spirit was having a great time as he wrote these words through Matthew. And I think Matthew was also having a great time as he wrote these words in the Spirit. Here, these men must have thought that they had been assigned to the easiest task in their military careers. And don't you see the divine humor in this? I hope you do. <laughs> the, the crucified, pierced in the heart, dead one, over whom these soldiers were, were to watch, had come to life. The dead one had come to life while these healthy, rough and tough Roman soldiers are convulsed with terror and they melt on the ground as dead. And I know the Holy Spirit purposely used the words as dead. (laughs) Jesus just rose from the dead and they fall down as dead. When these guys had been given their assignment, don't you think that they thought it was hilarious, you know, to make sure that a dead man stayed in his tomb. Piece of cake. What a job, you know. Um, Little did they know that they had been commanded to do, what they had been commanded to do by their superior officer was absolutely humanly impossible. Even with Satan and all the demonic realm on their side, there was no way that they could keep that man in his tomb. This dead man had risen from his horizontal position in the tomb, you know, while the horizontal ones outside the tomb fell down, <laughs> fell down horizontally. There is humor in that. And all the while, the angel is sitting there on the stone watching, <laughs> watching the whole thing. Well, when the soldiers woke up from their dead faint, They would have seen that the cords, I don't know if they saw this before they fainted or not, but when they did wake up, surely they saw that the cords and the seals were broken, the stone was rolled away, the tomb was empty, and oh, oh, they were in big trouble, weren't they? You know? Perhaps the angel was still sitting there, too, looking at them. I don't know, maybe he got down and shook them. Wake up, guys. (laughs) He didn't say a word to them. It's interesting. He didn't speak to them, but when the women come, he does speak to them. And, and calms down their hearts, because they start quaking, too. They are affrighted, it says. Um, but, let's uh, say okay, I lost my place here. I don't know if the angel was still up there, but whatever happened, those soldiers hightailed out of there. Some of them, as I mentioned, went to the chief priests to tell them what happened, which is hilarious. This is also really, really funny. <laughs> Who do the soldiers go to? Who do the high-ranking soldiers go to? The chief priests. All right, who are the chief priests? Sadducees. And the two things they do not believe in are angels and resurrection. <laughs> Don't you know God is in heaven just laughing? So you see again, the religious rulers' plan backfired on them. They saw to it that a guard be set over Jesus' tomb in order to dis. Prove any attempt to proclaim his resurrection. And it is actually the men of that guard who turn out to be the very ones who first proclaim directly to them the evidence of Christ's resurrection. Talk about a backfire. This made the rulers all the more accountable, didn't it? and inexcusable. For their willful unbelief, we'll get into this more, but these Roman soldiers were completely objective. They had no reason to tell the chief priests. I mean, it was their skin, right? And, And I'm sure they could see the fear on their faces, and those chief priests believed them. And they hated it because it disproved everything they stood for. So they had to spread a lie. It's amazing that they invent the lie, which was the very thing they attempted to prevent. They say, well, tell everybody that the disciples came and stole the body. Well, that's why they put the guard there, so that the disciples wouldn't come and steal the body. It, it's it's funny. to uh, It is. It's just funny. Well, we find then that the Lord had arranged matters so that by the time the women arrived at the tomb, the, the soldiers were gone, and unless they left behind a smoldering campfire... Or maybe one of them, you know, in their haste to get out of there, left his helmet or his sword or a water canteen or something. I don't know. Otherwise, the women might not even have known there was ever Roman soldiers there. Now, I'm sure they would see that the cord was torn, the seals were broken. Obviously, the one thing they did notice was that the, the stone had been rolled away. So the Lord God, before they even got there, he had taken care of a very serious obstacle before they were even aware of it. You know, they were just worried about the tombstone, but he had also gotten rid of the Roman guard. Now, we don't know how or where these women met up with one another, but we do know that Mary Magdalene apparently saw nothing of her surroundings when she got to the tomb. You know, she was focused on that tomb, and when she got there, with you know, remember now the sun's just coming up in the sky, she gets there, and the only thing she sees is what? That the stone had been rolled away. She doesn't see the angel. I don't know if he was still up there. On the, you know, I don't know where he was. I know he talks to the other Mary and to Salome. But Mary Magdalene doesn't see him. She sees only that the tomb is open. And she doesn't even bother to go in. What does she do? She does what I am so good at doing. The only exercise I ever get is jumping to conclusions. She jumped to a conclusion. When she saw the stone to the side, she said, Oh, they've come and they've stolen the Lord's body. So she just turns on her heel and runs. She doesn't take the time to investigate. She doesn't take the time to go into the tomb and look for herself. She just hightails out of there. Apparently, she must have had a word with the other two women who said, Go get Peter and John. You know, She's the youngest, so she's the one who runs. Does this indicate to us, when she says... You know, somebody during the two Sabbaths has come and stolen the Lord's body. Does that indicate to us that she was expecting to find the Lord resurrected? Not at all. And another thing evident by what she did, which was to run immediately to Peter and John, to tell them that they had taken the Lord's body, is to provide additional proof for us that it was not the disciples who took it. She goes to the disciples and says, they... Mary had spent years with these men. She perfectly well knew that they had nothing to do with this supposed grave robbery. You see, it didn't even occur to her that, that it could have been them, the Lord's disciples, who had stolen the Lord's body. And this is another testimony to the fact that this was the furthest thing from their minds. I think Mary had probably, you know, talked to them during the Sabbaths And they were probably all delighted that he was given such a respectful burial in a rich man's garden tomb. So, as I said, Mary didn't go into the tomb. She jumped to the conclusion that someone had robbed the grave, and she took off running. She knew exactly where to find Peter and John, and she burst in on them, and she gave her frantic message. She was speaking on behalf at least of the other two women when she said, we, we do not know where they laid him. Now, who do you think she meant when she said, they have taken the Lord? I, I don't really know who she might have meant. I suspect she might have thought that the Jewish religious rulers had come to remove Jesus's body from such a respectful place, you know, one that they would think he did not deserve. Maybe she thought that the Jewish religious rulers didn't want people going to that grave and... and um, putting flowers in front of it or whatever they would do, you know, and so they had just taken him and and put him in some despicable place where his disciples could never find him. Maybe she thought that they took his body and and buried it somewhere where no one would ever know where it was, okay? Or maybe she thought the Romans changed their minds and had taken his body to throw it in the Valley of Corpses. I don't know. Some think that maybe she thought the keepers of the graveyard had removed his body based on the fact when she's... um, talking to the resurrected Jesus and doesn't know it's him and thinks that he's a gardener, you know, a keeper of, the, of, the, of the, um, the graveyard there. And she asked him if he had taken the body and laid it somewhere else. But whoever she meant by her reference to they, we do know one thing. We know Mary was vexed and she was terrib- terribly overwhelmed by double grief. She now is suffering double grief. She had not only lost the one who had saved her from seven demons and given her new life and new hope and new purpose, but now she was even she had even lost what was left of him. You know, she had wanted to see him one last time. She had wanted to minister to him one last time with her aromatic spices. How would you feel if you went to lay... Flowers on your mother's grave, or your father's grave, or somebody that you loved, and you got there and found that that it was it was empty. The tomb was sideways, or the stone was sideways, and there was just a hole in the ground. Nobody was there. How would you feel? And she she was vexed. She was in despair. But remember, when does it get the darkest? Right before the dawn, and it was already dawn. Mary just didn't know it. It was already dawn. She was just too downcast. She was just too, down, down, was just too <laughs> downcast and teary-eyed to see that the sun was up. And I'm using that as a pun as well. You know, I, have, I did a cross stitch years ago, and I, I have it in my bedroom to remind me all the time. It says this, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. And it was morning, and pretty soon her weeping was going to be turned to eternal joy. Same with you and I, so hang in there. I know life gets pretty rough, a lot of bumps, right? A lot of obstacles, but joy comes in the morning. And we have that guarantee because of the resurrection. All right, let's pray. Father, we do indeed thank you for the resurrection. It is the seal, it is the headstone of the great work of redemption which your son came to do. It's the crowning proof that he did indeed pay the debt which he undertook to pay on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, that you sent your son to deliver us from hell and that we know, we have assurance that he is accepted by you as our surety and our substitute and our Savior. We have that assurity in his resurrection and in his ascension. If he never came forth from the prison of grave, we could never be sure that our ransom was fully paid. But we have that assurance. He really did rise again for our justification. And we are begotten again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And because he lives, we will live one day also. Thank you, thank you for that joy and that true, sure hope. We love you. I pray every woman will be a testimony for you over the resurrection holiday. And again, we lift up our dear sister Betty to you, and we put her lovingly into your care. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.